Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Boston Sanctuary since 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the Boston metropolitan area and beyond. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. We're located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. I first would like to thank um, our Reverend Kim for giving me this opportunity to speak with you today and to share with you my work. And I also would like to thank my friends who are joining me here today to offer support. Two Sundays ago, during service, there was a dedication for Elizabeth Surlia, I hope I pronounced it correctly, Martin, who is the daughter of Anna and Langdon Martin, who are members of the congregation. As I watched this dedication, I was really moved to tears when Reverend Whitehouse brushed a single pink rose across Elizabeth's forehead welcoming her to the congregation. There is a vase filled here too as well of beautiful pink roses. And I was sitting in the pew, I started looking at those roses and it reminded me of my grandfather, Thurman Sherwood, who died when I was 11 years old. He was the first person that I ever knew who had passed away. And I can't recall his funeral vividly, but I do recall the bright yellow roses that were draped over his coffin and that today is why yellow roses are my favorite flower. I decided to look up the meaning of the yellow rose and discovered that in contrast to the romantic meanings attributed to other roses, the yellow rose represents joy, gladness, friendship, and I care. It was very odd to me to recall these stunning yellow roses with the representation of warmth and happiness covering the cold, dark metal box that housed my grandfather's dead body. My experience in end-of-life care has shown that the image of death can often be contradictory, but the melody created by one's transition from their body can be unique and at the same time heart-wrenching, but always the most important sound to the heart. My interest in death and dying began in the late 80s, early 90s, during the height of the AIDS crisis. I was living in New York City at the time, and I had started volunteering in the buddy program at the Gay Men's Health Crisis, where I remained for five years. During that time, I would help the buddies run errands, listening to them, watch television with them, helping them get to and from doctor's appointments, whatever needed to be done. And I can remember my first buddy, Terry. And upon entering his apartment, I realized that we walked in two different circles in the gay community. I was very nervous, my armpits were sweating, my voice was shaking, I didn't know what to say or do. Here I was sitting in front of a young man who would eventually die within months. After our first meeting, it was very, I felt very awkward and did not feel as though I was going to be the best body, buddy, sorry. And I also felt as though he felt the same way. So I called him a couple of days later, there was no response. I called again and I called again yet there was no response. Then a few days after that, the agency called me to say that he was in the emergency room at New York University Medical Center. So I was determined and committed to make this relationship work. So I went to the emergency room and found him on one of the many utilized beds in the emergency room. And when Terry saw my eyes, he was in disbelief himself because he doesn't think or he didn't think that I was as committed to him as I was. 
After that, our relationship grew and he began to trust me. I would go shopping for Terry, play backgammon with him while he was receiving ineffective treatment, watch television with him, rub his feet, and just be his buddy. On the day of his death, I was one of 10 people who were holding hands, circling his bed, hoping to help him feel loved in his final moments. And upon his death, I realized I had never seen anyone die before. It wasn't frightening to me. I really didn't know what to expect. And though I felt great sadness, I also felt my heart was open for the first time. At that time, I could not explain what I was feeling, but what I was feeling was great intimacy, love, and truly being in the moment. I felt sad, I was crying, but my heart and my body felt light, and I felt honored to have been given permission by Terry to be present as he transitioned from his body. This was the first time I felt I was in the presence of spirit, whom I call God. It was at this point in my life that I decided that I had a new calling, though I didn't know, know exactly what that calling would be. I can remember asking a friend, so how do you get paid to do this kind of work? Eventually, my search led me to graduate school and earning my master's in social work. And since graduating in 2000, I have worked in HIV AIDS, hospice, and palliative care. I am often asked why I enjoy my work, and I would have to say that the primary reason is that it deepens my connection with God. I have found it amazing that at death, there is very little that is of true importance than what is occurring in that moment. Families who I would have never had the opportunity to engage with because of our differences welcome my assistance and we focus on our similarities and put our differences behind us instead of leading with them. The mystery of death is something we all share and that too signifies our oneness if we so choose. My work strengthens my compassion and non-judgmental approach to others and opens me up to discovering untapped possibilities in my own life. It has taught me to remember that one never knows when they may be removed from this earth. And now, not tomorrow, is the time to embrace your life. And I will be the first one to say I do not always live as I speak, but I am reminded daily how short our lives can be. I know I might be sounding a little bit like a Hallmark card, but I have learned more about living from working with the dying and their families than they will ever know. And I am committed to fully receiving their gifts by attempting to live my life as full as possible. And trust me, I stumble frequently. In his book, No Death, No Fear, Thich Nhat Hanh beautifully illustrates how living one's life to the fullest benefits not only oneself, but those they love. He writes, learn how to live happily, peacefully, and joyfully today. Please learn the practice of looking deeply and understanding the true nature of birth and death so you can die peacefully and without fear. This is something everyone can do. If you can practice so that you have no fear when one of your friends or dear ones is dying, you will be able to help them. You have to know what you really need to do and what you really do not need to do. You are intelligent enough to be able to use your time skillfully. You do not need to waste your time doing those things that are unnecessary and trifling. You do not have to be rich. You do not need to seek fame or power. What you need is freedom, solidity, peace, and joy. You need the time and energy to be able to share these things with others. And when you sit at the bedside of a dying person and you are calm and totally present in your body, mind, and soul, 
you will be successful in helping that person pass away in freedom. This teaching is part of my day-to-day -day practice in my own spiritual growth, as well as in my daily work with individuals who are dying. To be given the gift of witnessing one's life and helping one reflect on their own life can often be of invaluable importance to someone at the end of their life if they are willing and able to engage in the process. Dying is a stage of life that is often overlooked because of the inevitable feelings that arise are related to loss. It can be difficult times for patients, their loved ones, and caregivers, but it can also be an opportunity to redirect focus to the present. It is an opportunity for individuals to review their lives, embrace their achievements and disappointments, and acknowledge those who have been close to them in life and death. I've had numerous experiences of spiritual connection working with my patients and their families. I've been at the bedside speaking with lone family members when their loved one dies, and I often silently ask myself, why is this? Why, when I am here, could it be that the patient does not want their loved one to be alone during their death? I don't know. But I do believe we choose when we are going to die and that God is present when we do. Reverend Forrest Church of All Souls Church in New York City wrote an article adopted from a sermon he gave this past February entitled Love and Death that appeared in the recent UU World publication. He wrote, to see our tears reflected in another's eyes is the most holy of intimacies. And I could not agree more with these most beautiful words by Reverend Church, who himself is facing the end of his life after he was informed this past January that his cancer has recurred and spread. He also wrote, we enter the sacred realm of the heart where the one thing that can never be taken from us, even by death, is the love we give away before we go. An example of this is beautifully conveyed in the life of Baruch, an unknowingly, he who unknowingly gave away his love before his death. Baruch was a 22-year-old single male with testicular cancer who I met in the hospital before his death, which he only had two months left to live. But upon entering his room, I found this wonderful young man with this great joy in his face, headphones on, lip-syncing to this song that was on the on his CD player, he greeted me warmly, took off his headphones, was open to my presence, and we began to talk about all that he had been going to, going through, and he shared with me his regrets. His regrets that he would no longer be able to swim in the ocean, his regrets that he would not have a girlfriend, and his regrets that he could no longer perform with his band. As honestly as he shared this information with me, he did it with no self-pity, and no woe-is-me attitude. Here was this amazing young man fully embracing the reality of his life. Eventually, we began to speak about his spiritual beliefs, and he stated that he was raised Jewish, but that he'd been open to various spiritual thoughts and teaching. And towards the end of our conversation, he asked me, where do you think my soul will go when I die? I was speechless. I had never been asked that question before, and I did not know how to answer it, and I told him so. That night when I went home, I could not get that conversation out of my head. Here was this 22-year-old man who should be at the beginning of his life looking at his death and wanting to know where his soul would go. I started thinking about him and all the other practitioners who had been taking care of him, and they shared with me how much they enjoyed being with him 
because of the energy and the presence that he gave off. And so I had my answer. I went back the next morning. I told Baruch, I think I know where your soul will go. Your soul will remain with each one of us who you have touched through the life that you have lived. He looked at me and thought, hmm, I never thought of it that way. That was a moment and a man I will never forget. So I leave you today with a simple lesson from the life of Baruch, that though our bodies may die, a piece of our souls remain alive inside all who have shared our lives and who have we have loved. And so upon leaving church today, please spread your soul with abandonment. Amen, and go in peace. And now, I would like for us to have a moment of silence that I will end with amen. Amen. Oh,